0: Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss and thanks for listening. Historically, giving someone a diagnosis of a borderline personality disorder carried three issues. One was the accuracy of the diagnosis. The second was being skilled enough for the therapist to actually treat the patient. And thirdly was the problems at times of having adequate time and resources to give the person a proper treatment. Joining us today is Dr. Lois Choi-Kane, who is the medical director of the Gunnerson Residence at McLean Hospital in Massachusetts. Thank you for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's talk with some of the basic things that are necessary in order for proper treatment, and that would be proper diagnosis. Why is it such a problem?
1: well i think that standard psychiatric approaches to obtaining a history oftentimes misses the obtaining the information needed to make a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder So in a standard history-taking process for psychiatrists, they might not look for the features of borderline personality disorder because of either a lack of experience or a lack of instruction on how to do that.
0: Is it common that people—it's almost— what's the word I'm looking for? It's disconcerting to think that people who are practicing a mental health profession are going to miss the diagnosis.
1: Absolutely. And I can say from my own training that oftentimes the convention is to teach residents in psychiatry to defer the diagnosis of any personality disorder, let alone borderline personality disorder. So this oftentimes leads to kind of a permission giving stance in training that people don't have to assess this particular Diagnosis. So,
0: you very nicely used the word deferred. I could see people converting that to avoid.
1: Absolutely. I think that avoidance is usually a major factor in the kind of failure to make a diagnosis or the inattention to the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder.
0: What's troubling is that there clearly is good evidence that proper treatment can be very significant. Absolutely. And so to avoid the diagnosis is actually denying the person access to getting better.
1: That's true. That's true.
0: It's uncomfortable to even say that actually.
1: It is. And I think we can understand it in the context of the history of understanding borderline personality disorder. I think early writings and conceptualizations of the disorder included this idea that people with borderline personality disorder were treatment resistant Mm -hmm. and also that the prognosis for people with borderline personality disorder or BPD was poor. So this actually caused clinicians to have a sense of hopelessness about the diagnosis, which I think very much lent to this issue of avoiding.
0: So what's changed? I mean, you work in a facility where excellent work is done in dealing with borderlines. What's working now? Why the, the more the optimistic flavor?
1: I think because there's more information. I think in the age of evidence-based me- medicine in psychiatry at large, there's more rigor in studying all disorders and really understanding through evidence and research what actually happens to people who have borderline personality disorder in this situation, that the research on borderline personality disorder has just exploded in the last two decades. And we know better about the prognosis and the set of treatments that actually work to improve a borderline's symptoms.
0: What works then? What seems to work best? What type of treatment modality seems to work best, if there is a single modality?
1: Well, the good news is that there are several modalities that work, and they range from purely cognitive behavioral techniques that have been modified for borderline personality to psychodynamic approaches. So there's a range of different philosophies that can shape an approach to treating borderline personality disorder, but I think the common features are a few. I think, first of all, fundamentally, approaches that really are founded on treating the diagnosis, that is, that has a clear and coherent formulation of why people have this set of problems, that seems to really work best. And in fact, a lot of the major treatments for borderline personality disorder was born out of an understanding or an observation that when treatments that are just built for the average person were used for borderline patients, they tended to really not work. So, for example, Marshall Linehan developed dialectical behavioral therapy out of the observation that with suicidal patients who are borderline, they tended to be poor responders to cognitive behavioral therapy.
0: Would would you spend just a moment and tell us what dialectical behavioral therapy is in a very brief summary, of course.
1: So cognitive behavioral therapies in general are focused on identifying patterns of thoughts Emotions and behaviors and using the treatment to make changes to those patterns Now what Marshall Linehan found in treating these highly suicidal patients that tended to have borderline personality disorder is that borderlines could not really make use of a treatment that was solely focused on change so she modified CBT to incorporate both an aspect of acceptance, that the symptoms of borderline personality disorder were adaptations to problems that the borderline individual had early on, adaptations that may be not very effective in managing life, but adaptations nonetheless.
0: Which is an interesting spinoff because one of the major problems that borderlines have is they want instantaneous change, sure. and they're not always willing to accept that which will not change. Absolutely. Very interesting.
1: So it's a treatment that incorporates the idea of acceptance, both for the clinician to accept the patient as they are, and also for the patient to understand that reality is what it is, and that the first step to improving a situation is accepting it. Okay. And the second modification to DBT to CBT was the use of dialectics. Clinically, we observe that borderline patients have a tendency to black and white thinking, and the use of dialectics really mitigates a tendency to being black and white in your thinking, or another term that's been used psychodynamically is towards splitting, mm-hmm.
0: which is a term we have to get to with.
1: That's this. That's right. <laughs> So what dialectics does is really incorporate two things that may fundamentally seem opposite but actually go together. So someone may be both struggling but making an effort. And that's a dialectic that both patients and families often struggle with.
0: Let's go to the word splitting because a lot of times it's almost the undercurrent of what people expect when they hear that they're about to meet or treat or admit or deal with a borderline. It's a widely known phenomena. What is it though?
1: I think splitting happens at a variety of levels, but I think the simplest way for me to explain the fundamental phenomenon is that when a person who has borderline personality disorder cannot regulate their thoughts or feelings in a way that's stable, oftentimes what they do as a solution is fragment information and only deal with parts of the picture at a time.
0: So that would be an intervention then to bring the information in its entirety to the table.
1: Absolutely right. And that's a real process. So, you know, what can happen with splitting is that for a person who has borderline personality disorder, they may be able to only deal with either the good or positive aspects of a relationship or a person, or the bad and malevolent or disappointing aspects of that person. And that lends towards this phenomenon interpersonally of either idealization or devaluation. Another form of splitting is that a person may be enraged and angry and devaluing of someone on one day and then forget about it the next day. So this kind of ability to selectively attend to information, that can also contribute to this phenomenon of splitting.
0: And I guess that's also why so many times a borderline, when they're in crisis, looks so chaotic.
1: Absolutely because they're reacting to different pieces of information rather than the entire whole.
0: You mentioned earlier that one of the highest yields in terms of interventions or therapy is something called psychoeducation. Explain it, please.
1: So I think psychoeducation is an important intervention for any diagnosis. That is an orientation for the patient and the clinician to what the nature of the problem is. So just giving a person education about what their symptoms are so that they can know what the treatment is geared to changing And also so that the patient can evaluate their own treatment or their own progress. So educating someone about the nature of their problem, about the way that the treatment is designed to help stabilize their problem, helps the patient be more collaborative and also frames more realistic and reasonable expectations for both the patient and the clinician.
0: What role is there in terms of uh, obtaining family support in the treatment? And I say that knowing that very often it seems that people who have problems with a borderline personality disorder also come from troubled families, let's put it that way. So how important is it, and it may not always be accessible, family support? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I think that family support is a vital part of the treatment for borderline patients. And it may be true that the family can be a source of dysregulation and reactivity. And yet, I think that coaching and psychoeducation for the family so that they can be more stably supportive for the patient can actually decrease their symptoms over time, rather then contribute to them. So my, my experience is that when there's a lot of reactivity between the family and the borderline person, it's because they want to be involved with each other. If they were oriented towards giving up their relationship, then things would be much quieter. But in their efforts to really try to remain attached and cope with the situation at hand, they just tend to do a lot of things that just don't work well.
0: So how do you then pace it? A lot of people, all people, I guess, go into a therapy hoping they get better very quickly.
1: Absolutely. It would be nice. That would be fabulous.
0: <laughs> what is a typical sort of, if there is a typical, shall we say, schedule of expectations, how long does it take, and again, these are averages, how long does it take to successfully treat someone who has a borderline personality disorder?
1: Well, I think because of the problems of under or misdiagnosis, it's often true that People who come to a program like ours or in a setting like ours where there's a lot of specialized treatment for borderline personality disorder, those people tend to have gone through quite a bit of treatment before arriving at a specialized treatment like ours and have had a problem that is many, many years in the making some people can identify the signs of symptom or symptoms of bpd occurring in their adolescence and not arrive to treatment until their mid 20s and so what we do to kind of frame everyone's expectations is really observe facts about the course of their difficulties that if their their difficulties have been 5 to 10 years in the making that a treatment can't correct that course of habituated responses in two months, that there is initial phase of stabilization where a lot of the more destructive tendencies can diminish, but the real psychological change that promotes a maintenance of stability can take quite a long time. We'd say on the average, somewhere between a year to two years to really truly stabilize psychologically.
0: But the statistics, as I understand them, are really incredibly encouraging. Yes. Many of us never thought that that prognosis could be applied to a borderline personality disorder. Sure. How delightful to hear this. It's great. And one of the things also for modern psychiatry is that the same problem with the delay until the accurate diagnosis is also common between major depressions and bipolar disorders. A lot of people aren't recognized as bipolar until they've been in and out of multiple episodes or whatever. So it's the same thing here. Absolutely. Interesting, interesting. You talked earlier today about the notion of the treatment contract and how key it is that there be a team involved in terms of providing a good gestalt of treatment. I'd like to hear more of your thoughts about that.
1: Absolutely. I think that one of the things that's helpful in understanding the importance of clear expectations at the start of treatment, as well as a team-oriented approach, is to understand the attachment underpinnings of the diagnosis. The field of attachment studies has really been much more established in the last two decades. And at the same time, it's the same period of time where the research in understanding the, the psychopathology of BPD has also expanded.
0: Expand for just a moment what an attachment study means.
1: Okay. Well, there is a field of attachment that really has developed and validated a number of approaches to categorizing, describing, and naming attachment styles And this was developed mostly by Mary Ainsworth and Mary Main. Mary Ainsworth developed the strange situation, which helped us to identify attachment behaviors in infancy for children. And then the adult attachment interview was developed by Mary Main and collaborators. And that is a tool that's been validated to assess attachment in adults.
0: What I find intriguing and, and promising and in a very nice way is that everything I'm hearing about borderline today suggests that if we deal with the borderline aspect of the clinical presentation, we really have a good chance of making some real progress.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I was going to say about the attachment styles are that the two attachment styles that are associated with borderline personality disorder include a preoccupied attachment style where a child or a patient may make very extreme and exhaustive bids for attachment in a variety of dramatic ways. That any child, if they are distressed, will make some sort of signal to their caregivers. They may cry or say that they're upset about something, and this actually activates an attachment. Someone with a more preoccupied attachment style will amp up the attachment bid Mm -hmm. and be more extreme in their expressions of distress, which actually causes caregivers to intermittently attend intensively and then burn out.
0: Which feeds into the whole cycle. Exactly,
1: which is very reinforcing of itself. And the other attachment style is a more disorganized, fearful style where children or adults will be more fearful and mistrustful of attachments and yet dependent on them. So this combination of both need and fear for the attachment is fairly prototypical for borderline patients. And that is something that really always affects the treatment relationship. So, if someone expects that the treatment relationship itself will be troubled by the attachment style, having a clear set of agreements about the nature of treatment and what to expect is stabilizing when you start. So, that's a contract.
0: So, that this is what we're going to try to do. What happens if there's an emergency having someone to back up in case uh, (laughs) getting to the splitting. I'm angry at you, and I think you're the world's worst doctor now. The world's worst.
1: So to be able to expect that rather than personalize it is highly productive in the care of borderline patients.
0: And that's such an interesting point because I think part of the obstacles is that a lot of the therapists, or let me phrase it this way, not enough therapists know how to separate the sense of the personal attacks that right. a borderline, good borderline, can be very, very clever.
1: Absolutely, They're very skilled at making personalized attacks. Yes. <laughs> they are.
0: So it's, it goes back to the old transference and countertransference issues of how to approach a, a patient.
1: But if you see this in the context of an attachment, this is the way that a person has been shaped over time to get a caregiver to respond to them. So understanding that as just part of the disorder helps a clinician to more stably confront problems associated with these styles of attaching.
0: It's interesting that you use the word shape because one of the words in the lecture that you gave earlier today was behavioral shaping. And to me, that really captures what we're trying to do.
1: Absolutely. It may
0: not be the most central process of it all, but we have to reshape their way of thinking, how to teach them how to manage their feelings. Absolutely. So if it takes a year or two to do this, how long does it last? Do we have data that it's resilient, reasonably resilient? Are there high relapse rates, low relapse rates? Do we know?
1: Actually, the relapse rates are fairly low compared to other recurrent disorders like major depression or bipolar disorder, even anxiety disorders. The rate of relapse to BPD once there has been a remission of symptoms is fairly low. So once someone makes a change based on a reworked pattern of connecting relationship events with emotions, thoughts, and behaviors, those changes tend to be fairly lasting. Now, there is a stress diathesis model that can be used for understanding borderline personality, which is that someone who has a certain set of vulnerabilities meets a certain level of stress and symptoms occur. So it may be that someone who has borderline personality disorder receives treatment and their vulnerability to stress goes down. But with a great enough amount of stress... Say they'll they trigger. can be triggered. Say it might be the loss of an important relationship or a death of an important attachment figure or losing their job. These things can actually cause a relapse of symptoms. And
0: in a good old psychotherapeutic model, one would hope that somewhere along the line, those potentialities in life will be discussed and coping skills will be developed to handle it, which is a wonderful circle back to the basic issues that you talked about very early on of how so much of this is psychosocial, psychological. It's it's, it's really a fascinating evolution in a disorder. It it was quite a burden to people who had it.
1: It it is a burden to people who have it, and it's a burden to people who try to treat it if they don't have the information they need to be effective.
0: Dr. Lois Choi Kane is the director of the Gunderson Residence for McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. They do a tremendous amount of work, obviously, in the area of borderline personality disorders. Thank you very much for a very interesting, and far too quick, we'll have to follow this up somewhere along the line, but a very interesting overview of the treatment of borderline personalities.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.